welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Anat Klafter. She's co-director of the Exceptional Selves Humanities Lab at the Svi Yavitz School of Historical Studies at Tel Aviv University, and is my partner in crime as co-founder of the Mysticism and Lived Experience Network. Anat, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So you're here today to talk about Marjorie Kemp, but before you tell us about her, tell us about you. How did you first get interested in mysticism as a topic of study? I did my undergrad in art history and English lit, looking at how the relationship between text and image, and also how images operated and the reception was in relation to socioeconomic and cultural aspects of the Middle Ages, which kind of feeds into my great passion of popular culture, both present and past. And then when I started my MA and then went to a direct PhD, I actually took a seminar on angelology, and I had the opportunity of working on Hildegard of Bingen, who I'd always peripherally knew about while I was studying art history. I really got into her and the image-text relationship in her first visionary text, and I'd originally meant to actually work on her. But as I was progressing with uh, my work and my research, I actually started looking at English mystics at the suggestion of my soon-to-be supervisor, who thought that it might be interesting for me to do that within a course looking at Meister Eckhart and late medieval affective piety and the relationship between confessors and female mystics, just won over by Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich, apparently. That's how I came to be here. So the first time you read Marjorie's text, what was your impression of her? She was a lot, but I also felt that she was very fascinating. And Reading her in very close proximity to Julian of Norwich, because they generally are coupled together as like these two warring factions. I actually know people will say, I am Team Marjorie, I am Team Julian, which I don't care for. I think they're both wonderful and should be (laughs) equally studied. But I did feel that she wasn't as well respected as Julian was, and I thought that she deserved more R-E-S-P-E-C-T, so to speak, and that she was much more theologically and doctrinally thoughtful than is generally considered to be. And I thought there was a very interesting relationship between texts and images and how images are used and employed in that text that I didn't feel was reflected in the scholarship at the time. And that was kind of what I took upon myself to look at. So that's how you were originally using the text, but what are you doing with her work now? I am looking at how her lived experiences, because it is a uniquely autobiographically rich text. So we don't always have the amount of personal information that she offers us in other mystical texts. We need to mine them much more. And she's very generous with what she tells about herself. So taking what she tells us about herself and about her times and her experiences and looking at how, among other things, it impacts how she conceptualizes and articulates the divine and her relationships with it, her union, so to speak, with the divine. This is one of my main topics of focus with regard to Marjorie Kemp at the moment. Um, And that automatically brings in other mystics as well, some various case studies, because other mystics are named in the text. So she creates also this textual community in which you can situate her texts in relation to them. 
So I think that's something that I also find really fascinating. So she's a very good jumping off point. And then another thing that I'm working on is oral literacy and oral composition through her text, because I find it's very interesting to look at how one can compose a text without writing it. And I think that's something that stems from my need to write things out and my fascination with people who didn't do that in pre-modern times. So this creation of a community within her text of all these other mystics, is Marjorie a bit of a name dropper? I think it's, I don't know if it's name dropping or giving receipts, I guess, if we're going to use like modern lingo, but she needs them because that is how authority is actually structured at the time. Originality isn't as uh, valued as much then as it is now, and especially within theological, mystical, doctrinal circle. Being innovative is not always the road to success. Generally, it's the road to the stake and a nice little bonfire on the side. So she needs other mystics to cite to establish herself in relation to them and saying, well, I am like these mystics. A good example, this is Bridget of Sweden, who is an important role model for her. And this is someone who, within Marjorie's lifetime, has already been canonized very close to her death. So she can actually point to someone and say, well, she's very much like me. She was married. She had children. She didn't go into a nunnery. She didn't become an anchorite. She moved around in public spheres. She was a lay mystic, but not even a third order. And she's canonized. So this is my example. And then also the need to name drop various amounts of archbishops and bishops and uh, and papal legates is important because it shows while she claims to have a lot of what we like to call today haters and critics, she is accepted, very important, well-established members of the English church accept her and give her audience and give her a stamp of approval in a way that's less formal maybe than Hildegard of Bingen gets from the Pope for her text, but it's still important for her. And she has important ecclesiastical figures actually asking her to write her text years before she actually does it. So these are, I think, important. So it's name dropping in order to establish yourself. So yeah, I guess receipts is more exact. You mentioned that her work is surprisingly biographical. So let's talk about her life. What do we know about her? Uh, what we know about her comes almost entirely from the text itself, which is called The Book of Marjorie Kemp, truly original title. And there is one mention of a Marjorie Kemp in a Trinity Guild document that then gives us her end date, the earliest end date that we can have for her. So Marjorie Kemp dates are officially 1373 to sometime after 1436-38. She was the daughter of John Burnham, who was three-time mayor of Bishop's Lynn, which is now King's Lynn in Norfolk, and also a member of parliament. She was a merchant, so she comes from the upper middle class. And then she married John Kemp and had 14 children. We only really hear about one of her children, his exploits, and then his marriage and wife and child and his death. That's all we have, that information. She experiences her mystical conversion while still married, and she pursues her mystical vocation while still married to John Kemp. So she's still having children while she's pursuing her career as a mystic and visionary which is interesting. A lot of times you have a break, either 
the mystic is a widow or is living a chaste marriage or is about to become a widow. So that's unique in that sense. And she actually also nurses her husband later in life. But she does convince her husband to live a chaste life. And then she gets to go abroad on these vast pilgrimages. So she's a lay mystic pilgrim mother of 14, wife. She's many, many things. And that also makes the book multi-genred in that sense. It's like a composite because you have together a pilgrim account, a mystical text, a hagiography or what is considered to be an auto-hagiography. And what I look at and think of as a devotional guidebook to other people who are similar to her from the laity. So that's her in a nutshell. When you say that her work is auto-hagiographical, do you mean that she wrote it herself? So she was involved in the production of the book. I mean, when we say writing, we mean producing and dictating, because the act of physically writing in the sense that we think of writing is very different within the Middle Ages, and that's true for both men and women. So we need to think about as dictating to a scribe slash confessor or a scribe who is the confessor. So I think it's important on many levels to think of these as a co-written text in general, which I don't think is unusual because I think if we think of how people write today, uh, when they send things out to editors, when they write with certain journals in mind or certain newspapers in mind or certain audiences in mind, they self-edit and you get feedback from reviewers. So these processes are what we experience daily and we still credit the main writer, the person who came up with the idea as the author. And then for some reason, when we go back to the Middle Ages, it becomes muddier and murkier in a sense, especially if it's female authors, which is a struggle that the field deals with in general. But she is involved in the production and the text itself discusses it. It's very open and lays out the way in which the text was produced. So the text is made up of two parts. Book one is made up of 89 chapters and book two that's made up of 10 chapters. And these two books are not only different in their length, but they're also different in their character and their focus. The first book was written or dictated 20 years after the fact. So she's looking back at her life and retelling her experiences from her conversion to her mystical experiences to her pilgrimages that had brought her to this day when she's sitting down and dictating it. And she dictates it first to probably her son, what is considered or thought to be her eldest son but it's written very poorly. And she takes it to a scribe and a priest who says that he will rewrite it for her and then has a crisis of consciousness and lack of belief in her as a mystic. With divine intervention, he then is convinced that he needs to actually do this. There's sight miracles, there's translation miracles involved, but how it's actually produced is that she sits with him and they rewrite it together. So he needs her in order to decipher the text that he says is written in neither in good English nor in good German. So he needs her to write this. And then book two is written much closer to the events in question. So there's a more immediacy to it. And it really reads like an adventure or journal or pilgrimage text than the first one does. But the scribe himself does interject ever so often and gives some of his insights because the text is not always written in chronological order. It's not disjointed, but there are places that are out of sequence. And he does at one point mention that. 
So the beginning of this multifaceted, multi-genre text is Marjorie's conversion experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So it starts when she's fairly late in life, in the sense she's in her 20s. And many texts will explain how holy the person was when she was 10 years old, three years old, in the womb, and so on. So we don't have that for Marjorie so much. She's very clear about the fact that she enjoyed the earthly living before her conversion. But her conversion actually happens in relation or in connection to a very difficult first pregnancy and very difficult birth. And she lies in some form of physical and emotional distress for nine months where she is going mad and is self-harming. And then Christ comes down to her in the form of a handsome young man and explains to her that he has not forsaken her. So why has she forsaken him? And then she is magically cured. And this starts her on a path of conversions, but it's not immediate. It's not binary. So she slowly goes through a process where she is still trying to give up earthly joys and activities and interests, while still trying to be a brewer and a miller, successfully and unsuccessfully. So there's always that tension of she's successful, but then God is sort of punishing her or trying to get her on the right path. And then she does what in the text itself is called habits of a novice. So she wears a hair shirt. She tries certain ascetic practices. And then one night she's lying in bed and wakes up and hears the music of heaven and goes, oh, it is full Mary in heaven. And from that moment on, like a switch is actually turned and she fully converts. So it's conversion in parts, which I also think is interesting and a departure from a lot of what we see in other mystical texts and hagiographies, which makes her unique in many ways. So Christ keeps pushing her and pushing her to adopt this religious lifestyle, and then she finally does. But how does she communicate with the divine? What is that relationship like? So her interaction with Christ is it's primarily dialogue-based. It's a lot of conversations back and forth and a lot of support that she has from him. And also he guides her spiritually. So the earliest visions or visualizations that she has where she imagines herself as taking an active part in Christ's life is guided by Christ. He tells her, you shouldn't wear a hair shirt. Hair shirt is for beginners. It's for novices. You are, you know, you're better than that. (laughs) You don't need that. You have a hair shirt in your soul. It's an internal thing. So you don't need to physically do it. And then she said, you need to pray X times a day and you need to meditate and contemplate on my life. And she's one day in, in church and she goes like, oh, I don't know what to do. And he goes like, oh, I shall guide you. And he tells her how to think. So they're conversational and instructional and very supportive. It's a lot of support system in plays for Marjorie, who's troubled by the fact that she is a lay, married, sexually active woman pursuing this privileged relationship with the divine because there aren't any models that she can actually follow or imitate or emulate. Bridget of Sweden is a widow when she starts actively pursuing her life as a visionary and mystic. Others are virgins. And this is on the backdrop of a privileging in general of maidenhood and virginity over married women She's not that. And she cannot, for many years, manage to actually have a chaste marriage. So these are things that are causing her a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems. So Christ continuously needs to reiterate to her that it's fine, that he loves her just as much. 
he actually says, I love married women as much as widows and virgins. And she, on the other hand, really tries to express to the world this virginal maidenly persona. I always think of it as sort of like her inner authentic self, which is kind of a virgin, which she tries to perform with the support of God through dressing in white, which is problematic because maidens weren't necessarily wearing white at the time. So that's something that is always unique about also her fixation on wearing white in public and getting the right to wear white. So yeah, so I think of her dialogue with God about these things as sort of her trying to like re-virginize herself the second she was able to pursue a chaste marriage and sort of present her authentic self to the world as she thinks of herself or she wants to think of herself, despite continuously being told by God that she's fine as she is. So it's a complex relationship, just like the text itself. And we do see reflections of this insecurity in herself and in her relationship with God throughout the text. Yeah, that is true. She does continuously guess and second guess herself. It is part of, I think, the actual construct of the text itself. There's a lot of repetition, which kind of repeats also the anxiety and some trauma that I think she has that she's working through through repetition, but also that these stops and starts that she has. She goes like, I'll try it this way. I'll try it that way. I'll try it this way. I'll try it that way. So where many texts are not necessarily linear, but better structured or more cleanly structured than this. I think the uniqueness of it is that it gives us such incredible insight into how authority and sanctity can be and is constructed and presented and articulated to an audience. I think it makes this a particularly interesting and fruitful text and why I just keep coming back to it time and time and time again. Now, as you mentioned earlier, Marjorie had many haters, as you call them. Can you explain why people might have had a problem with her? First of all, in general, medieval mystics are extra, and and Marjorie was extra with an extra side of extra and a cherry on top. That is also the general consensus of Marjorie Kemp. I many times when I talk about her, a presenter of students, I always say, I love her. I work on her a lot. I would not want to take a trip with her anywhere. Like, I am not touring anywhere with her. She is excessive. She's an excessive person. She excessively performs her vocation, which includes copious crying, copious wailing. So it's crying in the sense of both tears and actual vocal cries. She thrashes on the floor. She continuously pontificates about Christ and devotion to others, both if they want to hear it or they don't want to hear it. So she's considered to be a lot by a lot of people. And it's very obvious that she needs to continuously express externally that she is a mystic in ways that are expansive and take up a lot of space. So that's one thing. Uh, And then there's something very threatening also about this, about a woman walking around many times by herself preaching. She will say she wasn't preaching, but in the sense of, you know, telling God's words. And this is thought to be threatening both by ecclesiastical figures, lay figures, and also just society in general. She continuously calls for reform. She criticizes bishops, their entourages, and other people for taking oaths for how they live and so on. And it's also important to remember that this is written at a time of social unrest where you have what's called the Lollard or Wycliffeite 
heresy, uh, which is considered to be both theologically and socially threatening. And it's very prevalent among middle-class urban individuals because it's a heresy that is making the rounds in the vernacular and calls for various forms of reform for the church and for church practices. So in that sense, she just is even more threatening because of this. You know, sometimes people who are a lot are a lot. And she doesn't keep all of that to herself. She takes it on the road as a pilgrim. So can you tell us a little bit about her pilgrimage experiences? So she partakes in pilgrimages both locally. So she travels all over England. So in theory, you would pilgrimage to certain shrines. So there's a famous shrine called Walsingham, which she visited. But she also travels to visit religious figures or anchorites throughout England. Famously, she visited with Julian of Norwich, who she mentions by name. She spent days there talking to her where Julian hears her confession and assures Marjorie that the voices that she hears and the ideas that she has access to are actually from God and not from the devil or from demons. So that's one type of pilgrimage that she does. And then she does more pilgrimages abroad, which are much more difficult to undertake. So she goes to Santiago de Compostela, she goes to the Holy Land and Rome, so the three major pilgrimages, Western Catholicism, Christendom, and in book two, she then travels extensively in German-speaking lands. And she does this on her own, pretty much. So she sets out, if we're thinking of the longest pilgrimage she has, is the pilgrimage to the Holy Land and then back home through Rome. She sets out alone with a maidservant who then dumps her very quickly because she can't stand her. And then she meets up with other pilgrims, which was something that people did. You didn't have to go with a group, but people organized together as they were waiting for ships or organizing ships to travel from England to the continent. Most travel to the Holy Land was done through Venice. So you had to continuously travel by land, by sea. And these people were like, yeah, we're all together. And then she starts pontificating to them and criticizing them. And I think there's also a sense that she's, you know, uppity, or they see her as being maybe uppity and very critical of them. I always kind of think of it as the way you think of, you know, Chaucer's pilgrims and how he's criticizing them, but she's doing it to their faces. And she won't eat with them. She won't eat the same things with them. And they every so often dump her. So like they're just like, we don't want to travel with you anymore. Try to leave her behind. They keep encountering her throughout their travels. And the same thing happens to her also in book two. She continuously needs to find new companions who will agree to travel with her because you do need to travel with other people. And then another thing is how she seems to kind of walk to the beat of her own drum in the sense that pilgrimage is very structured. If you go to Rome, you've not enacted pilgrimage. If you've gone to Rome and then walked to a set route of churches, you have then enacted pilgrimage to Rome. And depending how far you have come, the more indulgences you will have acquired for every step you walk on St. Peter's and so on and so forth. Or after you've done this specific circuit of churches, you can go to additional places and get more indulgences. So you have to hit certain places. And she doesn't really do this. And this is particularly interesting in Rome, because when she goes to the Holy Land in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is not under Christian rule, the freedom of movement is very restricted and access to holy sites is very restricted. So you have the Franciscans who are the Custodia Terra Sancta, and they take the pilgrims almost by the nose from place to place 
So there's no way to really deviate. So the only way she can deviate within the Holy Land is how she specifically acts at specific sites and the specific visionary experience that she has that other pilgrims may not have in these sites. She has a vision of the crucifixion of Christ when she's in um, the Holy Sepulchre, for example. But when she has freedom of movement, which Rome offers her, she doesn't seem to go and do the circuit. She mentions trying to do it, but then she gets stopped by weather. She gets stopped by a priest who criticizes her, but she never walks us through it. What she does do is that she paves her own route around Rome and makes Rome a sacred place and enacts pilgrimage that focuses on primarily St. Bridget, who lived in Rome, who was her main role model in Rome. So she actually walks in the footsteps of Bridget in the same way you would walk in the footsteps of Jesus in the Holy Land. And this enables her to sanctify what I consider the mundane. So she sanctifies not necessarily the churches of Rome, but the streets of Rome, those same streets that Bridget would have walked in and sat and asked for alms in for the poor. So that is something that you have in Rome that she does, and she does it through the visionary experiences that she has in Rome. And I would love to read a passage that actually illustrates this. Yes, please do. That'd be great. This is something that she recounts to us as she is having a visionary experience where she's about to be married to the Godhead. So Christ is marrying her to his father, and she's describing how much affection she actually has for Christ and his manhood and how difficult it is for her to depart from that and marry the Godhead. She is then convinced otherwise, but that is not the focus of this part of the passage, which I shall be reading. And she says, she had so much affection for Christ's manhood that when she saw women of Rome carrying children in their arms, if she knew for a fact that any of them were little boys, she would cry out, roar and weep as if she had seen Christ in his childhood. And if she could have had her way, she often wanted to take the children out of their mother's arms and kiss them in place of Christ. And if she saw a handsome man, it caused her great pain to look at him in case she might see he who is both God and man. Therefore, she often cried many times when she met a handsome man and wept and sobbed most dreadfully for Christ's manhood as she went about the streets of Rome, so that those who saw her were really astonished by her because they did not know the cause of this. I mean, who wouldn't be astonished by her? I'm having flashbacks to episode two and Margarita Ebner wanting to kiss crucifixes and cuddle the baby Jesus, but... Marjorie, she's on a whole nother level. She's just walking around the streets of Rome wanting to snatch babies out of people's arms so she can kiss them because they remind her of Christ. Yes, but more importantly, she is just walking through the streets of Rome, seeing Christ everywhere. This is a point where she can't even look up. She's continuously like walking with her head down, crying constantly because she sees Christ everywhere. But she sees him primarily in the streets of Rome rather than in churches or through crucifixes. And we know from the descriptions of where she actually had gone in Rome, that she was in the presence of a miracle-working crucifix in San Marcello, which has recently been taken out to help with the pandemic and has suffered great water damage from the rain and is being restored at the moment. But she was in the presence of this miracle-working crucifix, but she does not mention it. But she's very specific about seeing Christ in the street. And I think that is a very interesting move on her part of where she actually puts the seeing and the visioning and the experiencing of the divine. She also has it in a 
or a woman's home that she visits. So really in the mundane is where she sees the divine, which makes her, I think, particularly unique. So she is just walking to the beat of her own drum in all things at all times and annoying everybody because of it. Yeah, in a nutshell. Not to use Julian's term, but in a nutshell, yes. Yes. We are coming to the end now, and that means it is time for that one final question, which is, why is Marjorie Kemp your favorite mystic? First and foremost, Stockholm Syndrome. At this point, it must be. But I think that she is, on getting aside, I, I do work on other mystics, but I do think that she is really a rich well of experiences. And because she is trying to figure out how to construct herself as a mystic, she borrows from so many that as a scholar working on issues of construction of self and construction of authority and construction of sanctity and pilgrimage, so construction of sanctity of place and objects, and also how lived experience works. This is so much autobiography. So this is such a rich text. So you keep going back to it and it's a very dense text. So there's sometimes two lines is an entire episode in and of itself within an, an entire chapter. I sometimes read back and go, this happened? How did I forget this? How did I miss this? Because I've only read this 10, 15 times already. And I think this happens to a lot of people when they read Marjorie Kemp and work on her. And I think she's a really good stepping off point to look at other mystics as well, because it's a text that's connected to other texts in a very self-aware type of manner. So it's not happen sense. It borrows from and is in dialogue with mystical texts and hagiographies and devotional guides in general. And I think that's why I really love her. And um, she's a hoot and a half. And so are you. Anat, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your thoughts on the one and only Marjorie Kemp. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Michael Hahn about Angela of Foligno.